I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast that talks about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Neil Pasricha, the New York Times bestselling author of The Happiness Equation and the Book of Awesome series. The guys talk about life, positivity, and Neil's new book, You Are Awesome, available everywhere November 5th. Let's talk about it. But then you you have your own um, biases and your, and your own opinion about how they're being, and you put that on them afterwards. Then they're not going to feel comfortable, you know, elaborate on something if they if you disagree with them on it. If they know that, how like, do you uh, trust yourself or learn yourself to be so non judgmental? I don't know. That's, that's a, a good, good question. question because I just feel like I've always. I don't know. I, I guess like that's I've sort of that like way. what we were talking yeah. about earlier is like, is it, is it built in or it was there an experience? Is there an experience that comes along and it teaches you something? And then from that moment forward, you're, you're then like that or you, or you would at least start developing that skill. Mm. Um, I someone think traveling said that, is a huge catalyst for that because when you, yeah. when yeah. you travel and you realize that your bubble that you grew up in is, is, is exactly that it's a bubble mm. and then film around it. Everything and, you know, Right, everybody else like there's so many different experiences in life. So then, when you realize, oh well, the, I'm the way that I am because of the experiences that have shaped me within my community and within my group of friends and my circle that I grew up in, and you start to realize other people's circles and communities and bubbles are different, then you're able to understand, well, okay, this person thinks differently than I do, mm-hmm. and that's okay because they have different experiences in growing up than I did. And the yeah. two and the two groups can come together on the basis that they both understand that you've come from a different place. Yeah. Yeah. But the but then again the thing that always brings us together is the fact that we're all human beings. Yeah. You know, so like there's something that there's so many different experiences that we've come up in yet you know, when you strip away all of the things that make us who we are from the outside in, we're all the same. You know, we're all human beings. I heard Bill Clinton once say 99.99% of our chromosomic genome or whatever you call it is identical. Between any two people on the planet or something like that. Yeah. You know, um, meaning that any differences we see are just because we're looking for the the one thing that may be different. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So before we, before we uh, started recording, I was, I was telling you guys um, about this conversation that I had at at dinner the other night and we were talking about resilience. And um, the question was like, is there an experience in your life that has been the catalyst to make you more resilient as a human being? Or do you think that you were just born that way? And I think all of us were looking for that moment in our lives that, you know, uh, the challenge that we overcame that made us look at life differently and understand that, okay, I've overcome that challenge. Now I can apply that to my life and the other challenges that I face and more easily overcome them from from then on. And so I was thinking back, I haven't told you guys about this experience, but it I thought all the way back to this moment when I was 10 years old and I was at uh, Blizzard Beach 
um, at Where's Disney that? World in Florida. Oh. Yeah, it's Blizzard like, Beach, dude. This big water park. That place is fucking sick. Yeah. Well, so for, for those uh, who don't know what Blizzard Beach is, what, oh, it, what is man. So it's this water park in and Disney World. And we've replaced Jeremy with an 80-year-old man. Yeah, sorry, everybody. I've lost my voice. <laughs> um, so uh, so there's, this huge, there's this huge water slide. I think at the time... Um, and it may still be, but at the time it was the tallest and fastest water slide in the world. Yeah. It's like, it's like an epic version of, uh, the kamikaze that was in, uh, where was that? The Magic, Magic Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. yeah. So it's this, it looks like a ski jump, um, yeah. from when you're looking at it, uh, from like, from standing way far back, but it's a water but slide. It's a water yeah. slide and you actually don't go off the ramp <laughs> evidently because then people would die. But uh, but you kind of go through almost this like trap door type thing, and then straight down like almost like a ninety degree drop, and it can't like like most fast water slides. Obviously, it can't end in a pool because you'd basically just smash it on the bottom and die. So it has that like that <laughs> so like that like there's uh, a lot of uh, physics here involved. Uh, a slow that, curve at the bottom. It, it has that it has that like long like runoff, right? Right. Um. So anyway, I was ten years old. And my my whole family's like, okay, we're here at the water park. This is like the big slide, the thing to do. Uh, we're gonna go and do it. So I remember starting to head up in the line, and I and ten year old me was like, no, nah, I'm not gonna do it. Um, and I just decided I'm too I'm too afraid. I'm definitely not gonna do it. So my entire family left me down at the bottom and basically like, okay, well like this is the pool. Stay here and wait. We'll like, we'll be down after. And like, it's like an hour and a half lineup to get on the slide. So I, I didn't go with them and I was sitting around on my own and I don't remember what was going through my head, but I remember feeling really left out of the experience. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. So I went and got in line by myself. And I waited in line. I was there for like an hour and a half. I get up there. No communication with your family. No communication with my family. Uh, they are panicking. They're looking for you. They have no idea. Like, He's only like 10 a, years old. There's like a lost child message out in the theme park and stuff. And, and so anyway, I, I, I go down the water slide and but you did, I do you it. But you did the whole thing by yourself. I did the whole thing by myself. But you know what? I got to the bottom and I found my family and I was so excited. And they were like, where were you? Where were you? And I was like, I did the water slide. And they're like, no, you didn't. We were there. We, we all went up. You didn't come with us. And nobody in my family believed that I did it. Because it was all a dream? And No, it wasn't a dream. <laughs> you mean even after like a few minutes of trying to convince they, them? I was like, like, I'm wet. And they're like, sure you did. Okay. And I think that they were just thinking like, you know, I felt left out. Aww. So I just said that I did it because I felt left out. And they were just uh. like, okay, whatever. And like, it was just kind of brushed off. And then in that moment, I had a realization. There was two realizations that I had. One was I, I, I conquered my fear of doing that thing. I'm, I, and I'm like a, a person who's, I'd, I'd say, afraid of heights. And so being up there that high, too, as a 10-year-old, it was really scary. So I overcame that fear. But the second thing and more important thing I think I realized in that moment is that I, I didn't have to do that for anybody else. I just did it for myself. And I think my intention when I went up there was to do it not to be left out. But when I finished it and realized that they still didn't think that I did it, it wasn't about the fact of whether they thought that I did it or not. Right. It's about the fact that I did it. Yeah, like, there was I a, did there seems thing. like there's a real growth of the word I yeah. in your head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at all. yeah, it was it, and it's funny because we were at this dinner party. I'm telling the story and I'm like, holy shit, like I learned so much about myself in that moment, only looking back at this in, in hindsight. I wonder how that experience affected me in my growth as as like a ten year old 
human being. Yeah. Um, or was it just something that I just did and, mm. and I had that built in me in, in inherently from experiences that mm. I'd gone through that before made you that or climb the ladder in the first yeah. place. Yeah. yeah. Well, my biggest question is like uh, when you when your family listens to this podcast, you think they'll finally believe you. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe they will. <laughs> I would say we probably all have uh, all have an experience similar to that in the way that we come to a crossroads. And some yeah. people look back at that moment and go, I didn't do it. And some people go, Neil, I did. do you, do you have, it, the, is there a moment in your life that you can think of that pops up like that? Uh, the one that comes to mind is in my late twenties when I, so I, I lost my marriage and my best friend in the span of a, like a few weeks. So my wife That's told me. incredibly hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's everyone has, you know, it's hard to compare every, you know, everyone's got their own thing. But for me, it was, I was married two years. Uh, we bought, just bought a house. We're talking about starting a family. We're living in Mississauga, Ontario. Shout out to Streetsville. And uh, I get home one night and, 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 you know, she's courageous and kind and loving and honest and doesn't think this is going to work out. And a few days later, my best friend, Chris, who had been suffering from mental illness for a while and had already attempted suicide once, sadly, succeeded and took his own life. And so wow. I lost him and my, my wife and my marriage and my house like in like kind of like that. And that's why I started writing 1000awesomethings.com, which turned into the Book of Awesome. So the whole origin of the Book of Awesome is that the blog I started to cheer myself as I was going through that whole period. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. That, well, okay, you know what? We, we should, before we get too deep into it, we've kind of like just dived in head first uh, without water wings. Uh, uh, I, I, I have a little thing that I've prepped here, a little intro for Neil. Um, is it? Pasrika? Pasricha. It's like passing Pasricha. the salt shaker, reaching for it, and relaxing afterwards. Uh, Pasrich. Okay. Uh. Well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out. I put this together really quickly. Neil Pasricha, born September 17th, 1979, is a Canadian author, entrepreneur, podcaster, and public speaker characterized by his advocacy of positivity and simple pleasures. He's best known for the Book of Awesome series and the Happiness Equation, which are international bestsellers. And um, uh, did you put that together, or did Wikipedia put? You know, that now together? that I now that I think about it, this is a Wikipedia article, and uh, you're right. Oh, like me, I'm really That's confident, a- clear prose, I'd say yeah, for sure. Yeah. Crisp. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Neil, this is like I, I'm so I'm so excited to have you have you on the show. Um, you know, we I, I think a lot of the you just kind of tapped into it right there briefly, and and I know we'll get into it, but. You know, a big part of of what we are trying to do is is to talk to people about um, you know the most pivotal moments in their life, the the a lot of the most challenging moments in their life, and and finding the the positive or finding the the levity within those challenging moments. And you just said it right there. You know, you were going through likely one of the most challenging moments of your entire life. You know, a moment where. Um, a lot of people in that situation would end up fuck homeless, you know, like I believe divorce. I heard this yesterday at elevate divorce is one of the top reasons for men who end up living on the streets. Wow. Really? Um, I was actually just talking to a homeless guy on queen street, like just uh, blocks out there. Um, not the other day. He's like, got a broken arm. He's in the cast. And I'm like, what's going on brother? And he's like, 
she kicked me out. Like, I can't work anymore. I'm a contractor. I fell off the roof trying to get my kid's ball. And, like, it's been a while. I'm just looking for diaper money. And now I can't. She thinks I'm a bum. And, yeah. and it, literally what I'm saying is, yeah. like, I hear that in that story right, yeah. right there. Yeah. and That and is wild. It is, right? I, I, which I didn't realize that until I tell As a catalyst yesterday. for, like, a whole chain reaction of events that lead to. Exactly. Yeah. But your chain of reaction of events was a little bit different. You took the hardships that you went through and you, you found a way to use it and use it to fundamentally change your life. I'm assuming. I mean, that's a simple version, right? Cause it looks like you have the a of this devastation of this divorce, losing the friend and then the B of like, right, writes this blog and then this book kind of takes off. But in the middle of that, that chasm is like a ton of mm-hmm. horrible garbage. Like, right. I'm like trying to go to a therapist for the first time and like unsure and uncomfortable about how that's going to feel. I, go in to like three times a week therapy, you know, and it's like hugely valuable, but I was not sure how that process was going to work. I'm also like staying at my parents and like talking to them and like in East Indian culture, divorce is also a negative thing right. culturally. Um, you know, so I'm trying to navigate that I'm losing sleep. I'm not sleeping. So I'm, I'm also just like a hollow person through that all, like literally like I've lost 40 pounds due to, due to stress. Everybody works like you look great. You, you know, it's just keto. Um, <laughs> this is a normal thing. We think everyone that looks, loses weight is awesome. You know, like that's just a that projection. Is so funny. You know, you know what we're, though? We're it kind of that tonight actually at our live show. Yeah, I'm that's pretty right. Sure. Yeah. It kind of goes both ways though too. Um, uh, my girlfriend's, uh, mom last year, she, um, she was, she was at this point in her, in her life where she was, you know, uh, wasn't being physically active, wasn't eating very well, and decided to make some some changes. So she just went like hardcore, like set a date, and then started like totally switched her diet, started biking to work every day, changed everything, lost like like eighty pounds, and looked looks amazing now. And and most of the people in her community ask if she's sick. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, what and type of cancer? Basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and like she's an incredibly healthy person. Now. No, I really did and, go on the ride. And, she's and, telling everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. And and it's funny how how um, how people look at that and go, oh, she's sick. Yeah. You know. Fascinating. Which, Either which way, is, it's which, everyone guessing. You know, there's a study I came across <laughs> the other day called anorexics. The, I don't know if if you, if you guys heard this, but like they did a study where they ask anorexics to walk through a doorway. Um, and I, and I talk I talk about it because it's so interesting. And the doorway obviously can fit a normal person, but they ask everybody who's walking through the doorway, anorexics or non-orexics, they ask them a question that mentally distracts them as they walk through. And then the, somehow about the way they set up the study is they look at how much they move their body and anorexics shift sideways to go through the doorways slightly, thinking that they won't fit. Oh, wow. Even though they are already much skinnier than the average person. There right, is that a, body dysmorphia has kind of like, it's, it's literally a part of the way that they carry themselves through, wow. through space. Exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Crazy. You don't think you fit through the door, but you do kind of thing. Do you yeah. think it's almost like when, cause when we're, when I mentioned my, my uh, girlfriend's mom's experience and then you were talking about almost like the reverse assumption of that, uh, when, when, uh, do you think that people just kind of have a tendency to, to think towards the, the negative? You know, like that oh. it's a, that it's well, a, well, d- something negative causing that? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I, uh, because my thing was like, you look great. What's your secret? Right, right? Okay. like people like I, 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 maybe I was just extra chubby or something. <laughs> but, but I, I actually think, um, just zooming up a level, depending on what you're saying, it's like as, as a human species, the answer is totally yes. Like we have a walnut-sized thing in our brain called our amygdala, and it flashes flight or flight hormones at us all day. That's why when we we are so craving this negative news cycle because it 
reminds us of being chased by saber-toothed tigers. So we want to feel like there's something scary that we are succeeding from. That's why getting two likes on our Instagram photos these days is equivalent to like hanging off a cliff edge a hundred thousand years ago mm. because it's the we've we've our brains haven't changed, but we still think it's a life or death scenario. Two likes on a photo means I have no friends, which means I'm going to die because the tribe will kick me out. So we totally think that way, a hundred percent. But we have to practice thinking the opposite way. We, it's almost like when you go to the gym and you work your bicep, it gets bigger. You have to fucking change your brain lines, mm. the neural pathways to start thinking about positive stuff. And that is the work. How do you do that? And of course, a big thing I always say is turn off the news completely forever. Yeah. I was reading the, I was reading the, the, I was, we were, we were kind of doing some, some, some reading on your, on your career and everything. And, um, that that's really stuck out to me the the inspiration from the negative news cycle and how it's like Brian and I I remember when we were you know 18 19 smoking weed basically all day and catering tables going thinking you know trying to find out what we can do like what are we where is life taking us you know we didn't have any particular direction at the time it was kind of an interim period as we have in our late teens or early 20s when we're trying to figure it out and I remember talking about a news station with Brian and going can we, we should start a positive, a po- news. positive news station yeah. because the news is, it's always just the negative shit that people need to know, you know, people should know about, but also like, where are the highlighted great stories? You know, if the only great story that you hear is, I always, I always love that scene from uh, Anchorman. Anchorman with yeah. the squirrel water skiing and yeah. low and it's a squirrel that can water ski. <laughs> how rich (laughs) like then that's it like that's like what caps off the like you know everybody's going to die the 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 economy's going to tank you know your finances are are in jeopardy it's funny because that's that's a satire but also it's true like Mm -hmm. like you watch the news and it's basically like 55 minutes of like everybody should be afraid of everything. Right. And then all of a sudden there's like this little happy clip. Of, okay, no, before we, we wrap it up, I, yeah. here we go. The, a cat was rescued from a tree. That's yeah. Honestly, that, that's one part of, you know, we come to Toronto quite a bit and it's one part of Toronto that I've actually noticed um, since we've started doing this podcast because oftentimes when we come here, every morning the three of us will go find a diner. We'll sit down in a diner and then like, you know, we record a few episodes and then it's time for lunch. We go find another restaurant we sit down. And every one of these restaurants, every one of these diners has CP24 on the go. And CP24 oh, is show. the oh, my God. worst thing on the planet. I'll sit there during you know, our breakfast and I'll go in excited for the day. And I sit down, I'm having my bacon and eggs and I'm just glued to you uh-huh. know, the trillion things that they're throwing at you at all times, weather, it's, traffic. It's the gridded TV channel where they got traffic jams in one corner, the, the negative news flashing in the other, the like little headline. Like it's always negative. Stock ticker. Six boxes. Yes. But the thing that sticks out the most, and, and it really is, like it, it. I don't know if this is their MO. You know, like I, I, I've never known CB24 to be like, to lean any which particular way. Like I don't look at them like a Fox news or like a CNN sort of like there's the left, there's yeah, the right. They're just they, like they're headlines. Just kind of pumping out shit. Yeah. But everything they're pumping out is like a massive bummer. Oh yeah. It's always a bummer. We were at, we were get, grabbing a sandwich last night before we went to see, we, Brian and I went to see at Astra last night um, in IMAX. Whew. And um, we were sitting there waiting for How a sandwich. Many thumbs up. Uh, uh, I would do, I would say two thumbs up. Yeah, oh. Different than I thought it was going to be, but excellent. A cinematic epic. Um, we two were sitting thumbs there. up at how many? Like just your two thumbs? Well, or? I only have two thumbs. <laughs> I, I could probably stick my toes up in the air too. Um, we were sitting there waiting for a sandwich and CB24 was on. And 
it was a ridiculously long wait for the sandwich. And the whole news cycle had like the whole headline went around. cycle. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, all I feel like right now is that we're almost certainly going to be murdered in Toronto because, <laughs> yeah. because it was like 40 it murders, was like 14 people were killed yeah. in the last week. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, dude, like what is Toronto all about? And it does make you feel like you are, it does give you a false sense that like, it's likely to happen. Meanwhile, our murder rate in this country has actually never been lower. It's six per 100,000, and our suicide rates double that, which no one talks about. Right, yeah, exactly. You know? And uh, a big thing I advocate that I've been writing about a lot lately is this idea of untouchable days. So I do an untouchable day once a week where I totally unplug from everything, everyone, completely. I've got no internet access. No one can call me. My phone's in airplane mode. My wife doesn't know where I am, and I literally get all my best ideas from this thing. Mm. And it's being so productive that I actually now say, like I cancel my two newspaper subscriptions and my five magazine subscriptions and all I do, I only read, if I read anything, is books because it's like so MSNBC's job, in the words of a friend of mine, Ryan Holiday, he's like, it's to glue you to a screen and sell you Subarus. Mm. Fox News' job is to glue you to a screen and sell you bad credit protection scams. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, it's a business. Yeah. And oh, the yeah. business makes money when you stay, and, and we're starting to screw, like the line is like, you look at the elevator, CP24 is one example. The elevator is like, one tiny little box of weather and like 95% of an ad. You're mm, like, oh, they're yeah. just tricking me. Like there's wonder, a sun logo. So I can look up there. I wonder if it comes from the fact that if things are good, you're going to, you're go, oh, things are good. No need to pay much attention anymore. But if things are bad, you're looking if they'll get better. So if someone gives you a negative piece of news, you're, you're more likely to tune back in to go, is it improving? Is it getting better? Yeah. You know, as opposed mm. to, hey, the, actually, the economy is actually uh, good, and we can just go on cruise control for the next few months. Like, yeah. oh, cool! I don't need to pay attention to the stock market anymore, or my finances, or my you know four hundred one k, or whatever your wherever your money is. That, that's really interesting, and I and I feel like there's probably something to that. Um, Neil, I am curious about the untouchable untouchable days. You write about that in in uh, you are awesome. Um, how do you? Is I, that I, is that a part of you are awesome? Is that that's yeah. in the new the new book chapter yeah. eight chapter eight? Yeah, so yeah right. amazing. Yeah. I, yeah. I am curious about um, like how do you? I know that you talk about it in the book, but how do you condition people around you right. in your life to understand <laughs> that like I'm having an untouchable day right. and you can't talk to that's you the can't first interact thing with me. everyone says is they're like well my wife is like well you can't do that because what if our child has a huge accident at school and they need you to go to the hospital. And I, I said to her, well, you know, Leslie, uh, not too long ago, no one had a cell phone. Zero people had one. So no one could contact anybody during the day. And we're good, right? Everyone's still here. She's like, I don't like that. So she's like, uh, <laughs> how about at lunchtime for the hour 12 to 1, you like turn on your phone and then, you know, whatever. So I did that. And then, of course, you get the barrage of 17 text messages and yeah. 25 important sounding emails. And then I can't get back into the bubble. Like yeah. I can't, I'm therefore distracted for the rest of the day. So now what I do is... I um, tell her where I'll rel- like I'll relatively be. I might be at this coffee shop or walking down this street, like Bloor Street, all the way to wherever. <laughs> so, like, if you need me, just drive down the street or come to that coffee shop, and you'll find me. Mm. And because we've gone a year or two now doing this, guess what? There hasn't been any emergency. So, the more non-emergency days you have, the more the person gets naturally conditioned. Right. They're like, oh, I guess I don't really need them, and they didn't bug me at all all day. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a benefit to them too because you're not texting them 17 mm. times. Right. Which is part of the problem. Did you, mm. did you ever talk about an emergency uh, like pager? 
Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> that's have not a bad idea. Have yeah. the dumb phone that complements yeah. the smartphone that just has like one yeah. number can call yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 Your burner, your My, emergency burner. Emergency. Yeah. I'm taking red phone from the president, but yeah, the emergency <laughs> burners get more wire like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Hey, like, get, get Barksdale on this. No, um, yeah, you, yeah, we, we, I, do, I should get a pile of burners. That's right. <laughs> my, Thanks my, for the tip. My brother actually, uh, he, he turned off his dad on his phone, um, for, I think he's back on it now, but he did it for a few months and, uh, he said it was like life changing. Mm. Um, but also like you're talking about having an untouchable day, one day a week. I mean, it is beneficial and, and advantageous for a lot of reasons to have access to, cell phone data the the rest of the time through the week. It's kind of hard in today's uh, society mm. to to not be everything's built around it. You know? I mean yeah, but I mean I saw what I thought was the prettiest girl I'd seen in a long time uh, the other day. And I mean holistically pretty because I walk into a bar, a really popular downtown Toronto kind of bar late at night and it's like dim lighting and she's at the bar and she's reading a book. And I was like that was what made it so pretty to me. I was like, I'm like, I said to her, I was like, wow, you're sitting at the bar under dim light reading a book. I mean, that's awesome. And she's like, yeah, well, I don't have a phone. And I was like, you don't have a phone. You're like a 25 year old woman. And you don't have a phone. She's like, well, my phone broke and I just never mm. got a fix. And what has happened to me since has been so positive for me yeah, that I don't, I'm not going to get it fixed. And I'm like, I gave a speech last night talking about cell phones. I say cell phones have three big problems. They all start with the letter P. Physically, they're terrible for you. You got mel- you, you look at a bright screen an hour before bedtime. You don't produce melatonin yeah. overnight. You can't sleep very well. You're low resilience. So the next morning, you check Twitter right away. You're hun- turning into a hunchback with 60 pounds of pressure on your spine. You get text. I got texting thumb last year. I'm embarrassed to tell you. Like I couldn't no. use my thumb. I went to the physiotherapist. She said, all we do is thumbs now. <laughs> oh my god! Do you remember All signing casts? Thumbs. Do you remember signing casts when you were a kid? You guys are younger than me. So yeah, maybe. I remember you that. Like casts. Yeah. People had broken limbs. Where did they go? Have you ever seen a kid with a cast in the last few years? No. They all just got black bags in their eyes from playing Fortnite. <laughs> so the first one, physical. The second one, the second P is uh, psychological. You are comparing on, on the internet, always. You're comparing your director's cut life with everyone else's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if we have an awesome lunch after this recording or not because someone's at a lobster buffet in the Maldives, like on the Instagram. Like, I will never be good enough. It'll right. be, Oprah's looking at Bieber's followers. Like, no one wins. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? You can't. There is no top. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it is like, I mean... Social media, we were having this conversation uh, the other day with uh, somebody out on the podcast, um, Atticus, about like social media, its effect on you and you know how it makes you feel and celebrity and and just that just that 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 exact thing. like you are they give you the ability to curate to, to curate to give the impression that your life is sort of like this this one dimension over here and when, when in fact it's it's many dimensions and there are there are there are really shitty times and there are really awesome times and there's everything in between but we give off this one we can give off this one one angle of it which then promotes the jealousy to somebody else. Exactly what you're saying. Like Oprah, Oprah looking at Bieber, Bieber's Instagram account and going like, fuck, I'm not good enough. 12 more million. Um, and then the last piece just to close that off is, is productivity is like our, it, it, there's a study from McKinsey that says we now spend 31% of our days bookmarking, prioritizing and switching between tasks. So like a third of your day is mm-hmm. literally deciding what to do, yeah. not actually doing anything. Absolutely, that's crazy. Absolutely, I, I find myself doing that all the time. Looking and how, at things. how maddening is that? Right, totally. Like, like I, I know I do that all the time. And, it's like the Netflix dilemma. And whenever I pull back from it and realize I'm doing it, I notice how how much more anxious I currently am. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it's know? really. Th- I love that you said the Netflix dilemma because I, I think 
ninety percent of the time I spend quote unquote watching Netflix yeah. is actually choosing the show and then falling asleep the minute it starts and controlling you know <laughs> opening a new tab to check Rotten Tomatoes and opening a YouTube tab to watch the trailer like yeah. I have to set the whole thing up for my wife when she comes in front of our kids and I'm like I got three ready for you this was eighty eight percent here's the trailer yeah you know what I mean like, they, like here's this one's ninety two percent here's the trailer this one's sixty percent but I think we might like it you know like how many times sixty how many times have you how many times have you gone oh we have exactly enough time to watch a movie and then spent 35 minutes trying to pick it. And by the time you pick it, you go, we don't have nearly enough time to watch this movie anymore. (laughs) It's gone. I just did a, a, um, I was down at South by Southwest this year and I was talking about trust and I show a picture of Spotify and I say, uh, and I show a picture of a, uh, like a, a guy looking at a wall of 1,200 kinds of lettuce. And I'm like, this is what Spotify feels like to me. And then I show my actual, I took a picture of my actual CD binder. I still have nice. all my CDs. And I'm like, this I trust. <laughs> this has got a finite amount of music in it. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I spend 10 seconds choosing and all the rest listening. Yeah. Spotify, I'm just like, kind of like Netflix. I'm just like spending all my time choosing. Mm. <laughs> the pros to a uh, to a vinyl collection, because that was what that's how I felt when I started getting into vinyl, yeah. was... Hey, I'm going to put on an and, album an album, and I'm going to listen to the story that this album is telling me mm-hmm. from the first track to the last track and the beauty within that instead of going, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a time and place for playlists, but albums and vinyl in particular, it's just mm-hmm. so, it's just so warm and enjoyable. I and love it, you like so much more because of that. Like that's like amazing. That's it was what just, we, I think that's where we're going to go. Like we absolutely. have to go back there. It's too, we, are, do you know, and it's th- coming back. Well, the other thing is our brains are always looking for stopping mechanisms because we've had 200,000 years of evolution scrounging through the forest looking for enough berries till we're full. So now when you have endless consumption and the YouTube video autoplays and the Netflix video autoplays and the Spotify thing auto goes and the news never stops like a newspaper used to. Mm. And it's like, it totally feels anxiety provoking because all your brain wants to do is have something finish because you know, life is finite. Mm -hmm. Your time is finite. And so when things go on for infinity, like look at your credit card bill. Most of the stuff on my credit card bill never ends. Netflix, Spotify, Google Drive, whatever. They're like, I'm like, this is never, I'm like, yeah, it's only $10 a month. But I'm like, it never will end my whole life. Mm-hmm. That yeah. exa- it scares me. I like, I, you know, East Indian background. I'm like, $10 a month forever? That sounds like a lot. <laughs> That's, That's going to add up to a million dollars. I can do the math on that. <laughs> that is crazy. What I, I, go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, Neil, I, w- I want to go back to uh, talking about um, dealing with your, your divorce and your, uh, your friend, your best friend committing suicide. Um, you mentioned that it's not just this journey from A to B. What did that look like, and how did you first start to manage um, the challenge of going through that that really tough situation? Yeah, um, there's a lot there. It's uh, yeah, because sometimes people, and the reason I I add that huge caveat whenever someone mentions it is because I don't want people listening to this or to anything to ever think like, oh, I'll just start a blog and then I'll feel better. Because the truth is, I had a lot of support from my parents and I did have a therapist that was very helpful to me and there was time. Time adds a ton of help mm-hmm. just in, yeah. you know, all that. So I, so that's, but the blog was a big part of it. And so, um, you know, for me it was, uh, lots of days going into work with a tremendous amount of headaches. And, um, when I'd come home from work, I had no one. I had six contacts on my phone. I had like, I'd moved to downtown Toronto, never lived in a big city. I was from Oshawa, that's where I'm from. So I'm from a small town. So never lived in a big city, never lived by myself. 
So I'd come home from work, and that's why the blog partly got big, I think, is because I basically worked from 5 p.m. when I got home till like 3 in the morning every night because yeah. I had no friends and nothing else to do. Had had writing always been some form of therapy for you, you know, like whenever yeah. things got tough? Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't have said that at the time, but now looking back on it, it certainly was from like a very young age to like university where it was pounded out of me because I was just too busy doing other stuff. And then I found it again when I was like it. it, it so I, I, a super nerdy kid, only Indian kid in my school, um, small physically, so wasn't good at any sports, and wore thick bottle, thick Coke bottle glasses from the time when no one in the whole school had glasses, but I had like giant Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> and I never slept. That's the other thing on top of everything else. So my whole family would go to bed at eight o'clock every night. There's no internet, so I'm like I'd read a book a night. Mm-hmm. So it was very bookish, mm. and so writing. Uh, was always a thing for high school newspapers. I went to Queens and I there's a comedy newspaper there called Golden Words, and so I worked my way up to the editor of that paper in the four years. So I was like spending forty hours a week on on writing mm. in my early twenties, and then I stopped cold turkey when I graduated. And then when this all happened, I came. I it, it became a form of therapy. Did you yeah. did, like knowing that? Um, and I'm not sure what. I, I guess it's better to ask you what your kind of thought was around this. But when you're going through something so challenging like that. Did you kind of come up with this strategy and how you wanted to um, deal with such a challenging, being in a, such a challenging part of, point in your life? Or was it just like, oh, I just have to take this day by day? Well, it was weird because um, I started the blog 1000awesomethings.com on kind of a lark. Like I went to Google, I typed how to start a blog in. The first drop down is WordPress. I clicked the button. I type a thousand awesome things. Thousand sounds low. We just talked about the newspaper. What's in the paper? Millions of people are affected by the hurricane. Billions of dollars are made by Goldman Sachs. So it's like a thousand sounds super small. But then after writing an essay the first day, the second day, the third day, I get an email from a guy. He's like, hey, buddy, I don't know if you did the math, but actually if you're going to write an essay for a thousand straight weekdays, like you said you were on your website, that's going to take four straight years of not missing a single right. entry. <laughs> yeah. So it actually felt quite long, but... And, and to be honest with you, I, I wrote down every awesome thing I could think of. I had like eight of them. Like I, I had nothing. <laughs> I had no content. I was already bankrupt from the beginning. But when you start focusing, and we know this from research, like there's this amazing study um, on gratitude by Emmons and McCullough. And they say, if you just write down five things you're grateful for a week, that's it. Five. Mm. That's it. Then after 10 weeks, you're not only happier, you're also physically healthier. Mm. So my point is by creating a sun-like depression in the solar system of my life, which was this blog, mm. Friends started texting me ideas. People started offering suggestions in the comments. And the thing created its own mental depression. I mean, indentation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it created a space where positive things kept flying to me. And I kept keeping notepapers and stuff looking for more positive things. Mm. So it became its. And then by the end, when I hit number one, and we announced it, you know, it was like a big thing. The number one, the blog's over. And we announced on the news and everything. By that time, I actually had about 500 things left to write that I had no space mm. for now. Right. Because the momentum had been created. And it's the ultimate, like Oprah's right. Everyone should have a gratitude journal. It sounds so trite and cheesy and simplistic. <laughs> but actually, if you just write down a few things you're grateful for every day. Things will change. It totally helps. Yeah. It does the thing we talked about, moving all the pathways in your brain towards from the negative to the positive. That's one of my favorite things about my wife is every single day at a random point sometime throughout the day, she'll just say, hey, uh, what's one thing you're grateful for? Mm. And it's, Whoa. I just, 
And I love is her it so ca- much. is it captured? Uh, it, it, sorry, does she uh, record that? Any, like she wrote no, it down? No, or? no, it's just for. She, it's just, just for a, it's an interjection. Yep. This will. Uh, this will. Th- I love that. I'll have to apologize to the listeners because this might be the. Th- Possibly the third, possibly fourth. No, I think third time I've brought this up on the podcast, but it's so in line with what we're talking about here. With the, in terms of gratitude, um, I was I was at a uh, I was at like a, a like a weekend workshop thing for for finance and investing a few months ago, and and one of the things that um, the guy uh, who ran the the weekend was talking about. This is like really interesting cat in investments, um, but also really into meditation, mindfulness, and allowing that stuff to sort of like lead your investments. Like there should be a personal connection, moral values and stuff like that. Um, and he was talking about this guy, this Japanese billionaire who's, uh, who's, uh, I believe passed away now, but he had met him in sometime in the nineties. And, uh, he was a guy that he had looked up to for a really long time. And he eventually, he, he got to sit down with him and he said, uh, you know, if you could, if you could narrow down your success to, to one thing, what would you say that it would be that got you to where you are today, um, in your career? And he said, um, there's a, a Japanese practice called Maru, which is the, the practice of, of being grateful 1000 times a day. And so developing that practice of gratitude. And he said, every business that I ever invested in, I looked to see if that practice was somewhere in the business, mm-hmm. whether it was in different divisions of the business, because the gratitude, because the practice of gratitude brings on the attitude of positivity. And if you have the attitude of positivity, you can grow, you can get better, you can improve on what you're doing, you can be in, innovative and all these things that basically lead a company to, to grow and be successful. And that Maru being grateful a thousand times a day was the essence of his life and the essence of what he saw in his investments, That's, which I thought was like the coolest fucking thing yeah. in the world, especially coming from the world of investments where you think like cold calculated, mm. you know, what, yeah. You know, I feel like the, yeah, I feel like the Japanese people really are onto something then because, uh, Neil, you write about, uh, what's it called? What Ik- an amazing segue. Is it called? Yeah. It's Ikigai. called Ikigai. Wow. I yeah. just saw that. I was like, wow, this guy read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so why don't you, why, why don't you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about like because icky yeah. guys is yeah. it finding meaning yeah in the work that you do well so i like one of the more controversial things i've ever written although i didn't realize it was so controversial till it just happened uh was i wrote in my last book the happiness equation a whole chapter called never retire that's the name of the chapter. like never retire we we all think we should retire that's stupid mm-hmm. because it turns out that this guy in germany named otto literally his name is otto von bismarck like the bus driver in The Simpsons. Yeah, the best <laughs> yeah. name of all time, um, I think. He was the head of, he was the chancellor of Germany in the late 1800s. He's like, hey, wait a minute. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's like, we got a huge youth unemployment rate, 20, 30%. Yeah, if you're old, like super old, and you want to leave work, we'll give you a little bit of money. How, how about 65? We'll make up that number. The only bearing the number 65 had to anything was two years away from the average lifespan which was 67. Oh, wow. So that's where the number 65 retirement age actually came from. Penicillin wasn't invented for 40 years, you know, and then um, we copied it. Canada copied it. The U.S. copied it. England copied it. The U.S. Social Security Act. So everyone's got this thing called 65 as an age. It's made up from this guy in Germany who made it up because it was just close to when you died. And it was optional, by the way. It wasn't mandatory retirement. So we got this problem, but now we live way longer. And we want to retire earlier. So you have this giant chasm. Never use that word in like two years now. Use it twice in an hour. Uh, of like 40 years of your life, like that you're supposed to do nothing and be happy playing golf. And I'm like, uh-uh. I looked up the research. Turns out the two most dangerous years of your life 
physically dangerous are the year you are born and the year you retire. Mm. And almost everyone I know, including me, can think of someone who retired and suddenly dropped dead. Like it's like you took away the meaning, the purpose. What I call the three S's, social fulfillment, the stimulation of always learning something new, and the story, or ikigai, of having a, you're doing something that you couldn't do alone. Mm-hmm. So I look around the world, turns out National Geographic did a study called the Blue Zone Study, which you may have heard yep. of. Yeah. They looked at all the places where people live super long. One of those places was Okinawa, Japan. In Okinawa, Japan, they have no word for retirement. Literally nothing in their language describes the process of stopping work completely. Instead, they have a word called ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I, which translates as the reason you get out of bed in the morning. What is that pull or push for you? And if you have that, you never need to retire. So I'm like super against retirement. Actually, super stress. It's great stress relief. I don't want to save for retirement. I'm never going to stop working mm. ever. Do, do you think you said that it was a bit controversial? Like, did you get yeah. a lot of blowback? I did an hour on NPR yesterday all about this topic. Oh, wow. Like, it's that controversial. I've done national NPR over and over and over again. They can't get enough of it because you know why they like it? Because tons of people call in that are retirees, like, cussing me. Like, they, it's like, it's very <laughs> polarizing because they're like, I'm happily retired. What are you talking about, you dumb idiot? And I'm like, uh, well, for every one of you, there's nine people that have no social connection, are yeah. feeling extremely lonely, yeah. are living. We have we have Lost separated. The family unit has been spread out like taffy. You fly over there for school. You fly over there for work. You put your parents down in Phoenix. <laughs> and suddenly it's like we're a family, but we're in seven area codes. Like it's just and that's kind of what I'm railing. Against and there's a, bit, a part you know? of like there's a part of of retirement. Like I feel like there's so much. Our generation, like our parents' generation, coming up, you, you know, my my parents both worked in like the the typical corporate world where there was that very sort of like laid out. You know, you're going to be in this job, you're going to work for this long, you're going to get your pension, you're going to retire and do your thing. And you know, probably until I was like 15, that's probably the mentality I had about work or what work life would be. And then around 20, when when I started doing something that I really loved, that exact same sort of feeling came to me. Like, what is retirement all about? You know, is retirement really something that I need to be concerned about when I'm doing something that I love? Right. But if you're not doing something that you love, which there's plenty of people that, that, you know, end up in careers and, and, you know, I guess probably just because of the, the economic machine, that's just the way that it shakes out in the system that we're in. But do you think that, do you think that the stuff that you're doing and writing about is a way is a way for people who might not be in like, you know, the best job that they want or yeah. whatever to to go there are so many aspects of my life where mm. I can find where I can find inspiration, where I can find positivity. Yeah. Like yeah. like cuz you know, a lot of you know, just a lot of people end up in situations that aren't that aren't so great. Totally. Two things to say to that. One is when they introduced retirement in the U.S. in the 1930s um, and in Canada, you know, we had used to have mandatory retirement. So you were 65 in Ontario. You had to retire. That's when I lost my high school guidance counselor. He dropped dead of a heart attack two weeks after he was forced to leave. Um, but no one did. That's the amazing thing that people don't know. And throughout the 40s and 50s and 60s, no one did. It was only when Dell Webb and this whole like U.S. sunshine thing came out with a marketing campaign with life insurance companies to say, you deserve it. For right. all the hard work you've done, you deserve uh, it. And then retirement rate spiked as like this thing you earned. And so we used to think that it was like activity theory. Mm. For the first half of the 20th century, it was like, you know, the, you have to be doing to live. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're through changing, 
you're through. Mm-hmm. That was the old theory. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is, yeah, I use the phrase never retire to be a little provocative. What I'm really saying is just always be doing right. something right. you love. And yeah. none of those S's I said, social structure, sorry, social stimulation and story, none of the S's was purposely salary. Mm. Like there actually is not necessarily a financial component. It's just, could you volunteer at the library? Yeah. Could you be, could you be, you know, writing a blog? Could you, if you, if you're done your 30 years at the meatpacking plant, I'm not saying sign up for 30 more. I'm saying don't play golf forever. You'll yeah. get really bored of that yeah. and fall over one day. Because people, people think like, I, th- I think it's a really common thought to have to go, um, you know, retirement I've been doing and now retirement will be, will be, is doing nothing. And like, actually now I get to do nothing. You know, like some, pe- so, well, some people, think mentality, that, some people think that doing nothing is really awesome and you quickly find out that it's not. The worst mentality though is, is working towards that time with the expectation that once you get there, life is going to be better. Yeah. If you're not enjoying your day to day and the work that you do on a regular basis, then what's the point of, well, of, of even living? Exactly. And the other thing I say, which it doesn't get spoken as loudly is take a ton of vacation. Like I'm also a huge advocate for like taking, I take eight <coughs> weeks off a year. Eight. I take five off in the summer with my, my wife and kids to be totally unplugged with them. Two weeks off for Christmas, one week in March for when they're on March break. And that sounds like a lot, but I'm also like, it's kind of like mini retirement. It's kind of like little retirement pieces mm-hmm. so that you the, practice it. You know, you're not just like going to suddenly go from a race car hitting a wall kind of thing. Yeah. I actually, I do uh, quite a bit of work with uh, work environment and I worked um, in team building and training in, in Dubai for four years. And, and, I have this fascination of of the work environment and how it affects people's um, life because we talk a lot about work life balance. Yeah. But uh, I just read this article that was in um, the New York Times last week, and it was talking about how millennials their expectation of the work environment is shifting the way that employers um, structure uh, contracts with uh, as far as like time off goes, mm. vacation expectations of when they show up to start work, when they finish, and you know old school employers expect you to be there from nine to five. Um, but it's saying that now millennials are, are coming into the workforce and expecting to be able to show up at 10 or 11. And you know, if they show up at 10 or 11, it doesn't mean that they're going to leave at five o'clock. They'll work until the job is, is done, until they have to get the stuff done that, that they're required to do for the day. But you know, they value a place of employment like that because maybe they have to take their pet to the vet in the morning. And so if, if you're giving them that time to take your pet to the vet... Then they're gonna want to answer their phone at eight o'clock at night or ten o'clock at night when when a client calls because you're giving them that time then so they feel like oh well I I know that my uh, place of employment values my work so I'm gonna make sure that I'm doing a good job and I I personally really appreciate um, work environments like that because I'm not the type of person who feels like I can sit behind a desk from nine o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night because I know that. I'll be miserable. Yeah. Like even if I mm-hmm. like the thing that I'm doing, That's why you're on a I couch. can't who can focus on doing one task or one job for eight hours straight. Yeah. My I don't dad, think anybody can. I don't like maybe there are people who can do that, but I I don't I Chris, can't. Do Chris Hatfield probably could. <laughs> yeah. My dad I with to your podcast with him. My dad with with what we do and what I and what <laughs> my my career back home is I own a yoga studio and I manage that and teach yoga and stuff, but um my dad said to me at one point that I uh, that I don't work. 
basically, or that his, you don't his work. that his perception is that I don't work. Right. And, and I went, do you think I don't work because I enjoy what I do? And he was like, like he, you know, he made some snide comment like, oh yeah, like, yeah, like, like Taylor's uh, 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 like always on vacation or like, or uh, something, something along those mm-hmm. lines. And I was like, I get th- a lot of that. Do you think I, do, do you think I don't work <laughs> yeah. because I enjoy what I do? And he yeah. basically was like, holy shit. I, I, I do because I've been, cause he's been conditioned in his, yeah. in his, in his career that work is work mm. when you don't want to do it. His brain is welded together, work and pain. Yeah. Ooh, and know, like, those it, two they, words can't like, be separated. Like, yeah. Like, like passion, passion and work can't be, they can't coincide. They can't go together. And, and that if you, if you do enjoy what you do, you probably don't complain about, you know, I, the stuff that the things that you got to do, the meetings that you have to have, the calls, the whatever. And that if, and that if you're not complaining about it, then it can't really be work, right? Because work is supposed to be something that you're really happy at five o'clock when Mm -hmm. it's over and that you get to go and do your other thing or whatever. I think that's so fascinating. And so I, I, I can totally relate to that. I heard Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon at an interview say, it's not work-life balance, like the scale model people picture, like you know whatever on both sides. It's actually a work, uh, work-life flywheel. Have you heard this before? No. So you know what a flywheel is? It's like that thing uh, where you see like once in a while water pours in, and, and then because water's pouring in, the thing spins faster and faster. Yep. Okay, that's a bad explanation. But so <laughs> he's like, if you if you love your work, which you guys do, whatever, it's like it gives you energy. Actually, at the end of a long day, you actually have more energy. Well, where does the energy go? Well, you go home to your wife and, and to your kids or whatever, and it, you give more energy. Well, what do you do when you put more energy into your home? They give you more energy back. You're, you're a dad who's dancing, making a great breakfast, whatever you, whatever you do. Like, so then what happens when you go to work? You have tons of energy. So he's like, actually, the, the energy that you create, if you love both those things, makes the whole thing spin faster and faster and yeah. faster. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good way to put that. He's it's, a pretty smart guy. Yeah, <laughs> he's done well <laughs> really? for himself. <laughs> Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Um, I want to take a second to 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 plug the the new book. Uh, it's coming out soon, correct? In, yeah, in November, November fifth, November fifth. I'm not sure when where, where this will land in terms of the probably sometime in October. Sometime in October. So yeah, so it's coming out soon. Uh, you are awesome. How to navigate change, wrestle with failure, and live an intentional life. Um, what sets this one apart from the Book of Awesome? Yeah. Um, so, Book of Awesome is all about gratitude, warm underwear, cold pillows, uh, hearing a stranger fart in an elevator, finally <laughs> peeing after holding it forever. That was my like. That was my first swing at the plate, you know. <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I'm proud of the book, don't get me wrong, but that's like where I was. And then what happened after the divorce, and I should probably close this off for the listeners, is like a few years later, I'm living downtown. I'm, it takes me a year to go on online dating sites. It takes mm. me another year till I meet someone who I like and who also likes me. The second part's very important. <laughs> like a lot of people, they ghosted me. And then two years after, so two years after my divorce, I finally go on this date with someone who I, who I end up falling in love with. 
Her name is Leslie. She's a teacher down down here. I feel the same way. Like I love hearing you talk about love because I I'm like obsessed with my wife. Like she's a wonderful and incredible and inspirational person. Um, and I just get so much energy from anytime I see her or talk to her. It's amazing. So we go on a honeymoon after we get married. Uh, so so I, I get remarried. I go on a honeymoon, and then on the on the flight home from Southeast Asia, she's sick. So we have a layover in Kuala Lumpur, um, Malaysia. She's looking for a pharmacy place to lie down. So it's a disaster. We get back on the plane. I'm like, Les, it's a 13-hour flight. Are you sure? We could get off. We could stay here the night. She's like, no, no, I'm good. So we go up above the clouds. She goes to the little airplane bathroom. She comes back to our seat. She tells me, I'm pregnant. So she bought the pregnancy test in the Kuala Lumpur airport pharmacy. She did the pregnancy test in the tiny airplane bathroom, like above the whatever ocean that is. And and then she comes back and it's like, I'm pregnant. So I get home to Toronto. I write a three. For the next nine months, I write a 300-page love letter to the my unborn child, which is this book, The Happiness Equation. So this book is the letter. So now you're just like, well, then what's the? why would you even bother writing a new one? Well, it's because now I'm worried about these kids. So now I have three kids. They're three boys, five, three, and one at the time of recording this. One today, like the one-year-old turned oh, one today. Yeah. Um, it's your kid's birthday, and you're here with us today. Yeah, so. yeah like, <laughs> thanks a lot. Like kids crying. Is this an untouchable day for you? He has no idea. It's his birthday. It's like a pet. You put a hat on him and give him a cake. Anyway, um, so I, uh, I, uh, I'm worried about them. Why? Because their life's too easy. Like they have like three pillows in their beds. Like it's like they have a they have water in their taps. They have there's no plagues. There's no famines. There's no. I'm just saying like life's super easy. And it goes back to the conversation at the beginning. It is. Like we actually, despite what you see on the news, this is actually the safest time to be mm-hmm. alive with the most access to clean water, with the highest rates of education, with the highest rates of longevity. Like we've, we're living in an awesome world yeah. right now, oh, right? Yeah. Well, this is an abundance town. So yet at the same time, anxiety is spiking. Depression is spiking. Suicide's certainly not going down. Mm-hmm. If you know, it depends what data, data you look at. So I'm like, wait a minute. This is the ultimate paradox of our time. We have the we have the most ever stuff we've ever had, and we feel the least good about it. Mm-hmm. And I, that's why I say I'm worried about my kids. It's like anxiety is so high. But one in three U.S. college students has clinical anxiety. One in three. That is yeah. wild. That's crazy. Clinical anxiety. Like they go to someone who tells them it's on a piece of paper official. Yeah. You know what wow. I mean? It's from the New York Times. They wrote a big cover story about it. And uh, – so this book, You Are Awesome, is my collection of uh, research, science, advice, frameworks, lessons presented to my children and to me, because I also stress out and freak out about everything, on w- how can we thicken our skin? How do we become failure-proof? How do we, be- how do we stop being like porcelain dolls and actually be ready for the world? Because the world's going to tell you you stink. That's what advertisements are there for. That's what social media is there for. That's what the news is there for. It's going to tell you you need deodorant because you stink. You look at the ads, you're not pretty enough. You, The whole point is to tell you you're awful. So you're going to get that barrage forever. How do you take it in here and hold it to yourself? How mm-hmm. do you feel the way you felt after that water slide and say, like, I'm in charge. I can control this. I determine the future. So the whole book is just a pile of lessons on how to do that. Hmm. One of which is we talked about untouchable days. I love that. Um, we, we oftentimes get uh, a lot of people, um, a, a lot of our listeners will ask us how, how is recording conversations with people who live with illness taught us more about ourselves? I'm curious in what ways doing this research and looking into how to be more grateful, how to be resilient and be, be fail, failure proof. Um, how has that impacted your life? Well, I first of all had to come to terms with how 
really fragile I am. Like I had a pretty cushy childhood too. My parents were immigrants. My mom from Kenya, my dad from India. They came here with nothing, no no money, no family, no friends, nothing. And yet they the perception I had in my childhood is that we had everything. So they did all the hard work. And so I had this upbringing where I never stressed or worried about money and do we have enough to eat and all this stuff. So I was really lucky. And then I, it turns out I'm quite fragile, maybe because <laughs> of that. And this is epitomized by a guy who came up to me after his piece of the other day. I'm going to tell you the story because I actually related to the story, which is embarrassing. But he says, Neil, what's wrong with my son? He, he graduated as a top of his class in high school. He was the captain of the football team. He was the valedictorian. He got a scholarship to Duke. He graduated with honors. He got an awesome job. And on the first day of work, his boss sent him an email saying he didn't do something right. He called me that night from his bed crying, saying he can't bear to go into work the next day. He's like, what's wrong with my son? He, he was super successful but he's like crippled with mm. anxiety or fear or worry about the fact that his boss hates him and work sucks. One of the chapters in this book is about how I totally failed my first job in almost exactly the same way, where I was like demonizing myself, telling myself I stunk at everything. A big part of this book is how do you tell yourself a different story? Mm-hmm. Like I have a whole thing in this book about how I didn't know I had one ball till grade nine gym class. When my teacher told me, the teacher said, made a wisecrack in front of the room, grade nine, like, Gym class, not a good scene. And he's like, um, <laughs> yeah, I crushed this guy's ball once in a East European wrestling tournament. From that point on, we all called him half a man. And the whole room erupted in like laughs. And I was like, oh shit, everyone else has two? I didn't know. Whoa, I didn't know. Really? I had where, no, was your, where was your nut? When I was six weeks old, I had a, I, I never stopped crying as a baby. So my parents took me in for emergency surgery. Turns out I had a hernia and undescended testicle. I lost it and I have a huge scar at my groin now Whoa. to this day. So um, uh, I didn't know I had that because, of course, you have one nose, one mouth, one heart, one one stomach. I'm like one down the middle. That's yeah. everyone. You got one of everything down the middle. Um, I never knew. And, of course, it's the 80s. Like He-Man yeah. doesn't have balls. So I never knew. It wasn't <laughs> on a doll or anything. So I basically never knew until grade 9 gym class. And then what happened was, and this is part of the story I'm telling you, is that like I then shrouded that little objective fact of like I have one ball with I will never mate. I will have a yeah. high-pitched voice. I will never meet a girlfriend. I uh, can't play contact sports because I'll lose the other one, and then I'm, then I'm, then I'm <laughs> yeah. done. You know, I'm literally, I shrouded that thing with enamel that was so thick. It was all these other stories. And mm-hmm. so a huge part of this book, and this is back to your question, is like I had to realize how many stories I have layered on mm-hmm. top of my own self and work to unpack them. So in the book, I lay out three questions that help me. There's research around, you know, will this matter on my deathbed? Right? Uh, can I do something about this? Like, uh, just a series of questions that force some introspection. But how do you tell yourself a different story yeah. when you are so used to thinking work is the same as pain? Or in my case, uh, I'm a tiny, fragile, effeminate uh, man who will never be successful. I might never be able to have children. Yeah, that's what I had in my head. I, it takes a while to crack through that. The uh, when I when the, the the subtitle of your book, the the part about wrestling with failure, um, that really struck me. And <clears throat> I guess this is the perfect time to ask this question because you're kind of touching on it already in the way that wrestling how to wrestle with failure, but also like the situation you just described is how to wrestle with the perception of failure where something is really not a failure at all, but we perceive it as such because of whatever, maybe a, a really yeah. cushy upbringing. Two, two likes on a photo means you yeah, have no friends. Exactly. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm thinking in the, and I'm thinking, you know, in the context of our show, like, um, 
you know, like a mental illness can often be, oftentimes be looked at as a failure. Like I, you know, I, 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 I feel this way and I feel like I'm not, no, I'm not normal because I, I uh, have depression or anxiety or whatever the hell it is. Um, or my body has done this thing like, you know, and I'm sure Jerry, you can, you know, I know that you can probably relate to this when you were in your teens and going through your kind of like phase of wanting to not take your pills and sort mm-hmm. of this like rebellious phase, like, like your body has failed you or you failed your body or whatever. Um, like what to say to people who are having that perception of failure. And I guess you kind of just, you kind of just talked about it. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you tell yourself a different story? Like yeah. what are the, like, what are some, like, like if you could, if you could pick how out. How do you failure proof ourselves? Cause we we're so susceptible to this feeling of, of sucking now, you know? Yeah. And so one thing I talk about in the book is this idea of failure budgets, um, which is a weird idea, but I actually do this in my own life. So on January 1st of every year, I actually move a set amount of money that I say to myself is that is just to be spent on things I have no idea if they will work. And the example I always give people is grade nine gym class from a different perspective than the story I just told. It's like, did you ever remember grade nine gym class? It's like one week's volleyball, one week's basketball, Mm. one week's soccer. So no one's good at everything. So you have all these weeks where you're not very good. So your learning's really high Mm because you're failing a lot. Mm -hmm. But as an adult, people usually one dimensionalize themselves. They stick with if, if soccer was their thing, if they're still playing anything, it's probably soccer, right? But at the same time, if they tried a different sport, tried a cooking class or a different cuisine, go to a far flung music festival in, in a country music you never listened to, go to a reading from an author you never heard of. In my case, my whole podcast is a fail, part of my failure budget. Everything I spent, we were talking about the microphone stuff earlier. I don't have any income on my podcast, zero. Mm-hmm. All I have is the idea that I can hang out with someone cool and interesting and talk to them as a way to learn. And I put that as my as part of my failure budget. It's like an expense I purposely make to try to be crappy. And I'm not, I wasn't a good interviewer when I'm starting the thing. And I don't know how to do these conversations. So it's the, and I don't know how to use the technology, even the microphones and stuff. So I'm like, all that stuff forces failure and forces learning. And it, failure budgets provide for that. And isn't that so interesting that when you, that actually trying something new that you're likely going to fail at is probably the best way to feel positivity and uh, and feel uh, like you're uplifted really quickly. Because if you try something new, that first time will suck. If you just do that new thing twice, yeah, that second time is so fundamentally better than the first time you tried it. Because you... You you have like the first the first few times you do something new you get this massive improvement curve yeah like you exactly. do you, you do go something from knowing nothing to knowing half of the right stuff and then and that and then yeah. that slows down over time as you get more into like the tiny little details of what you're trying to do but that upswing is so steep it's why you know people come into our yoga, my yoga studio and you know they're really nervous to try yoga they haven't done anything physical in ten years whatever and they're you know they're nervous and scared that they're not going to be able to do it well and they they come out and they go oh, okay well, yeah, that was, that was hard. And then like a week later, they're like, my life has changed because I never thought that I could do anything physical. And now I've done this five times and I've totally ramped up my confidence, you know, and, and it's incredible. And, but people get into this rhythm as they grow older that it's, oh, it's too risky to, to try this new thing. I don't want to say, you know, somebody asked me to go do, to go do this on Thursday night, but I said, no, I've never done that before. It's probably not a good idea for me. Right. And you start saying no to things. So you you learn to sit with the emotions of that, that process. Like, oh, I like if I'm going to go and try something new, then I can relate to the last time I tried. If you're, if you're trying new things often, you, you learn to sit with that, that emotion of like, oh, I don't know how to do this, but 
if I keep doing this for, you know, if I come back tomorrow and come back the next day, then I'm going to learn and yeah. improve and get better and get better. This is why I went to a nude beach for my 40th birthday. <laughs> because <laughs> Did I you go to the island? Yeah, because yeah. I because I listened to an interview with Brian Chesky, the guy who founded Airbnb, and apparently, according to the research, because they have all this extra money to do all this research, they found that the number one differentiator between people who enjoyed their travel experience and those who didn't was those who did had a growth that they looked back on fondly, meaning that they did something outside of their comfort zone and yeah. were like, oh, it turns out I could actually do that. Yeah. So I was turning 40 last week. I was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to do something that I'll look back and be like, I never did that before. But And I know that maybe that's minor for some people and major for others. But for me, it was like, then I'll do, I'll, we'll have a growth experience. I want to do something that I just hadn't done. So it's almost like well, we weren't going to leave Toronto because we had to drop off our kids and pick them up from school. It's so almost like six uh, hours to accomplish the growth experience. It's <laughs> almost like creating. It's almost like creating a trigger within yourself that when something actually kind of scares you, that actually triggers the a recognition of 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 oh, of, of, of growth it. of I better yeah. do this. Like oh, if it scares me, I should probably do it because then I know that it will be a really energizing experience because I'm going to be kind of anxious and nervous about it and that will bring you know like when we go up and speak it, like I feel like that every yeah. time I'm like holy fuck like this could go yeah. wrong I could fuck up blah 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 but I'm going to I'm going to go for it not fuck up and then when I don't I'm like out yes. I know it's fucking it's 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 it's, it's, it's incredible and doing something new is some yeah it's just it, it's fascinating like we we should all be doing something new all the time and not slowing down our growth although we, we do end up slowing down over one time of my, one of my favorite things that ted ever taught um <laughs> is a, a yoga teacher of ours um in in one of his classes was was how you know you're, if you're coming up against a pose within the sequence that you just hate you hate that pose that's the one mm -hmm. that you really shouldn't be skipping Mm -hmm. That's the one you should really take the most time to like really sink your teeth into. And it completely revolutionized my practice, right? It changed the way that, like you just said, just changed the way that I would think about when I'm coming into that pose, my mental mindset, where I'm at. And then the next thing you know, you know, a couple of weeks later, you're finding this like revelation in camel pose, like in this deep back bend that you've never had before because you've always just gone, no, I'm going to sit this one out. It makes me feel anxious. I'm going to sit this one out. It hurts my, well, I mean, if, if it's hurting you, you might want to back away, but you and know then I mean. from your, and then from your perspective as a teacher, yeah, then those things that you struggled with because you know, it didn't quite fit quite right. You were a little stiff there and you can apply this to absolutely anything you do yes. in your life. Those are the things that you become the best at teaching because the struggle that you had to endure right. to learn how to do it well or to at least enjoy it somewhat and know how to learn it. That gives you such a capacity to be able to pass that on to the next person right. because there's infinite amount of people that are also struggling with that as well. And yeah. then you can pass that on way better than somebody who comes to that very easily. That's right. It's way harder when you come to something very easy you can do it really well, but it's hard. To, it's harder to teach it for some people. Have you heard of that four-step process to learning anything, like learning how to drive the car? It's like uh, unconsciously incompetent. So no. you don't know you can drive a car, and you don't know you suck at it. Then you are consciously incompetent. You have right. your first time behind the wheel, and you're like, "Oh, bam! I banged into the like the hit the curb. I suck at driving." Then you are uh, consciously competent. Like you're good and you know it. I can drive. Mm -hmm. And then you are, this is the last one. This is the one you don't want to get to, to your point, is unconsciously competent. Meaning the very last part on this four-step process is you arrive home and you're driving and you don't know how you got there. Right. You know, because mm -hmm. you are so good at driving, you've outsourced it to a part of your brain that just does it automatically. Yeah, it's, it's like but you can only teach from the third box. Yeah. You can't teach from the fourth box. So yeah. when people mm -hmm. are naturals, 
they suck at teaching yeah, others. Totally. You can't, you can't understand, you don't understand it from like a very technical point of view. Yeah. That's a challenge with a, a lot of, um, uh, coaches in sports, if they were formerly athletes that were naturally good at a young age, sometimes they they don't make the best coaches. They they might understand the game really well, but they can't articulate the way to play. They, they can't articulate it in a way that would work to inform somebody. And else why some of the it. best coaches in the world in any sport are are very rarely ever ever uh, were the best in the sport. Mm-hmm. You know, like the guy that uh, I can't remember what was the team that won the uh, was the Blues. The guy, the coach of the St. Louis Blues, he was a he was a fighter in the NHL, mm. like like the lowest denomination when it comes to the sport in terms of like skill. Like the guy's job was to go out there and basically tell some guy to go fuck himself until they got in a fist fight. And he can go back from a st- strategic point of view, from a teaching point of view, because of how much he struggled with this, the the IQ of the sport to be able to to be able to hack it in a league where he still has to skate around and keep up with everybody and play the game until he can get in that fight. He understands it from such a perspective that he can go and coach an NHL team to win a Stanley Cup. Yeah, and like that's a very that you know there's something there's something like enjoy the struggle or if you can see the struggle from that perspective, then I think you can be really successful and really inspirational to a lot of people. Well, the one thing to throw in here while we're on the topic of sports and failure is um, when I was researching this book, I I remember something that I found out when I was a kid, which is I had this book of like baseball statistics. My dad got like pre Wikipedia, you know, <laughs> and just read it off the internet. So, so it was like, it had a list of every stat that they kept. And I remember seeing like uh, this guy named Cy Young, you know, has won the most wins ever in baseball. He's won 511 games. But then hilariously, he's also on the top of the most losses. Like he's lost more games than any pitchers ever lost before. Just 316. Similarly, Nolan Ryan has the most strikeouts. He's got the most strike. Still has has it. 5,714. Guess who has the most walks? (laughs) Nolan Ryan. He's walked more people than anyone. 2,795. Yes, I'm looking at the numbers because I I, I lift open the page. But I was like, it was like, wait a minute. The guy who is the most awesome also has the most failure. So I'm while they're preaching about Tom Brady, you know, breaking all these records, it's probably like he also probably has the most incomplete passes. Oh, he probably also has the most absolutely uh, fluky Super Bowl wins. And his story, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, you can find endless. I mean, I'm a I'm a huge Tom Brady. I'm a I'm a a huge Tom Brady fan. So, uh, or I'm a I'm a huge uh, Patriots fan. So Tom Brady uh, by association. But like, you know, guy gets drafted. Uh, like bottom of the bottom of the draft in 2000 to the year 2000, 2001 or something like that. You know, no one ever thinks he's going to make it. The struggle that he had to go through to make mm. himself into a, into an awesome player and become, you know, become the, the player that he is today. Like no one ever saw, you know, he wasn't a Sidney Crosby. He didn't, he wasn't growing up breaking records and blowing everybody's mind. And you get to that point because hard work, dedication, knowing that, knowing that, you're coming up against a bunch of people that are expecting you to fail. That's the same reason why he probably can't stop. Can't stop playing. Yeah. Yeah. And Cause, now. Because he, his works like that has got him over the hump with the momentum that he can't turn off. Now. And now the way people talk about him, and you guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about this because I fucking love Brady and the Patriots, but um, that last year when he's 40 or 41, all the news was, oh, well, he's too old now. Like he can't possibly do it. What the, what an idiot for coming back and playing. He should have just left, go out on top, whatever. Goes out, wins a Super Bowl. Now the rhetoric now is, oh, if he's decided to play, it's because he knows he can win a Super Bowl. It's because he knows he can win. Hmm. And now everyone's like, oh, he's forty two and he's still playing. He's the most dangerous he's ever been. You know what the crazy thing is though is like 
Maybe he just likes playing. Yeah. <laughs> he does say that. I like nothing more than playing football. You know, like, they also, like it also I, helps when they change all the rules. To I understand, help you. but the, so we were, we were having this conversation. <laughs> that's really, that's really funny. <laughs> I didn't hear a comeback though. <laughs> but, he, but the but the thing is, like, you know, I was talking about uh, Usain Bolt when he when he set the last record or won the Olympic gold medal last time, and it's like, do you think he will train again to race to the next one? And I remember whoever I was speaking to, the conversation was all about like, well, do you think he can win? Mm. And it's like, well, maybe like, do you think he just enjoys the lifestyle and yeah. the training? And like, you know, if he doesn't win the next time, is that okay? Because he enjoyed what he was doing and wanted to continue living that life anyway. Like, mm-hmm. shouldn't that mm. be more important? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's obsessed, you know, and again, like this, yeah. these are conversations about, well, I do do things. Yeah, exactly. A conversation about a football player, but I mean, you can, you, know, you can take these things and, and just, and apply them to anything. Like he, he, he is, he's obsessed with human performance. He's obsessed with winning. He's obsessed with competition. He's obsessed with proving himself right and proving other people wrong doubters and, and going up against that perception of failure that we were talking about earlier. Um, this, I feel like we could, we could really like just continue talking forever. Um, we were, we're running up to time here, but before we, we, we find a place to kind of wrap this up, I, you mentioned it earlier and I think, I think it'd be valuable to, to bring it up here because I, I truly do think your podcast is, is awesome. Um, you, you just recently started a podcast, three books, um, can you tell us about the, the idea behind it? Because it's a really, I love it. it's I a love fantastic it. idea. It really is. Uh, sure. First of all, before I get into that, did you, I don't know if I've told you this or you have, if, and what's the word called when you pick it up without knowing it, uh, intimated, I don't know if you've intimated this, uh, <laughs> but I'm obsessed with the number 1000. So I, I want to go on a tiny little rant here. Did you know the average person is alive for a thousand months? That's the average lifespan right really? now. Whoa. The average person is awake for a thousand minutes a day. That's the number of minutes the average person is awake for per day, 16 and two thirds hours. My first blog was called 1000awesomethings.com where I wrote 1000 awesome things in a row. And this podcast is my 15 year long quest to uncover the 1000 most formative books in the world. Maybe I should have called it that, but I ended up calling it three books because each chapter talks to somebody about which three books changed their life. And Mm. so- I will rain. My whole thing is like a, I have a two by two matrix in my brain of like uh, notable or famous and interesting. Right. And I only want people that are interesting and famous or interesting and not famous. I do not want famous and not interesting, which unfortunately means I had to say no to this gigantic rapper that I sat beside on a plane that was awesome with millions of followers on Instagram. But I was like, I was like, do you read books? He's like, nope. I'm like, you're Dang. out. <laughs> and that's too bad. You know, whereas but I met this Uber driver coming home from the bar right there, Bar Raval, uh, my favorite bar in the city. And like the guy had a 4.99 rating and 5,000 rides. And I was like, I've never seen a rating that high with that that's many huge. rides. So I get in the car and, and he's like, is it Neil? Is it Neil? And I'm like, it is Neil. It is Neil. Like, this is me. And I get in and it's, he's an amazing guy. And I get, he gets to my house and I'm like, do you read books? He's like, books are everything to me. Books have changed my life. It's the only accent I do. Okay? <laughs> and, and so it's, I know we're not supposed to do accents anymore. But, but so, so then. You're, the, you so, get a pass. Yeah, on that one accent, I can do it. So then um, I, I trade phone numbers with a guy. I do the interview in his in his Uber. No and it's, it, it's chapter seven of my podcast is with Vishwas Agrawal, literally the world's greatest Uber driver. The last 500 ratings he's got are all five stars. 
Um, Whoa, Seth Godin, the marketing author, heard this and on the podcast I did with him, it's like, you got to do a book, call it 4.99 Life Secrets to Success in the World's Greatest Uber. We're doing, like, we're putting the book proposal together. With no my way. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, he's super interesting and no one would ever heard of him, but yeah. I want interesting. That's how I just find yeah. the guests. And um, so it's taken me to some interesting places. I only do them live. Uh, so I've flown to Florida to interview Judy Bloom. I went to Malcolm Gladwell's house in New York City, which was really fun and super nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I'm having a thrill because I read the three books before I interview the people, right? Before I talk to them, ideally, if I, if I can get into that. Their I'm three trying. books, like yes. the, the three books that have changed right. their life. Yeah. Now, if I can, so like Malcolm Gladwell gave me, you know, um, uh, all books that he's written. So I read it, right. But whereas like, uh, I did an interview with David Sedaris, you mentioned earlier, and like I got his books the night before. So yeah. that morning I was just scrounging around to even find them for the podcast. So anyway, for me, I publish it on the lunar calendar, which don't ever do that because the Apple algorithm doesn't like it. But <laughs> I do it because um, I don't trust the Gregorian calendar. I've thought about this. The Gregorian calendar that we all follow is only 500 years old. Nobody knows how many days February has. What's daylight savings? You want to try to explain that to me? Like that, that doesn't even make sense. Um, so the lunar calendar is 30,000 years old. Like, I don't know, do the math, like 60 times longer we've been using that calendar. It's permanently in the sky. Like, you know what, like, there it is. Like, that's the moon. Like, it's right there. So on the exact minute of every single new moon, which is where it's totally empty, and every single full moon when it's totally full, I drop a chapter. That's why it takes 15 years. Awesome. That's great. Thanks for letting me go on a rant. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I'm I'm really curious to know. I mean, we're still, you're still pretty early on into the process, but yeah. Has there been has there been one book that you came across out of out of all the, your guests' three books that has like really blown your mind? Because I know you you read a lot, so so has. But has I didn't one, used to. Do you know? Did you know I didn't used to read at all? Even like five years ago. That's why yeah. I do the podcast. And my wife came over. She's like, "Well, when she was my girlfriend, Leslie came over. She's like, where's all your books? You know, you're not supposed to sleep with someone if they don't have any books.' You've heard that quote. I haven't. That makes a lot of sense. If you, means, heard, if you go to sense. someone's house, they don't have books. There's that quote, like, don't fuck them. Have you heard that? Before? It's, like a famous, <laughs> it's a famous quote. An author would say that. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing, though. I yeah, can totally yeah. so, feel but that. But she came over to my house. She's like, "Where's your books?" And I'm like, "I don't have any. Who's got time to read? Are you kidding me?" Like, she's like, "You write books. Like, you're a writer." I'm like, "I'm a writer." You haven't got me yet. Like, I don't read. I don't have time. And she's like, oh, my God. She's like, are you kidding me? You probably read a ton as a child. I'm like, I did. And so from that year, Jeremy, I went from five books to 50 books the next year. We canceled cable, canceled the newspapers, blah, blah, blah. I started an email list where I tell people what books I'm reading. So that is what provoked me to realize, hey, everyone wants to read more, and it's possible. Hence the pot. Like, that's what it came from actually me not reading that much. And then the answer uh, sorry, yeah. I was going to ask you what your your three books were, yeah. but I feel like it is better just to ask what your one, what yeah, your one yeah. book was. Well, I, I want to know what the one book that, that you didn't read that you came across through one of your guests. Like, I want to know whose book recommendation, like, is it the Who's Uber driver the, or is it, yeah. or is it David Sedaris? You know, like, yeah. is it the, the, the author you've looked up to for your, your whole life? You know, like, I mean, there's just so many. Uh, so the beautiful part about the show because I don't know how much you know about like what they do in the book industry these days, but right now it's like essentially the best sour list is at the front of the store or the airport. So you got no chance of finding these things. So when Malcolm Gladwell told me to read The Person and the Situation by Lee Nisbet and Ross, it's like an academic textbook, which hilariously he wrote the foreword for. So I guess there wasn't a book <laughs> there. I was like blown away because he, this gets back to Brady. 
the person in the situation, this book says that no, per- we think everything's due to the person. You, you're awesome. It's because of you. You suck. It's because of you. This is going to tie back into you are awesome. My current book too. But actually, almost everything is about the situation. So he said, you cannot have an argument about who's the best quarterback in history. That argument, it does not make any sense. It's the system. Right. It's the function of the coach, the offensive coordinator, the stadium they play in, the, the, the rules of the, of the era, etc. Mm-hmm. The quarterback conversation has no meaning. And I think about this a lot because it's like, so that book has been formative to me to answer your question. Because I'm like, yeah, like, okay, book of awesome. Honestly, the stock market was in a tailspin. The Urban Outfitters table it was placed upon had 19 negative books, and my book was the only positive one. Mm. It was just a moment that I got fluky lucky where the thing took off. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it wasn't me writing this awesome book. It was the situation. Yeah. Mm. Heather Reisman picked it for her Heather's picks. Like, I didn't control that. So, um, I, it totally relieved stress and anxiety because you, and this is another research study that I do in the book. High, High performers think it's always on them when they fail. Mm. Low performers think it's on the system. Mm. They say, oh, mm. I wasn't set up for success. They didn't give me enough time for the test. They say stuff like that. But we need to be somewhere in the middle. But remembering that you're putting it on you and maybe there's some situational factors helps you understand why yeah. you didn't get into Yale. Because yeah. maybe they didn't have enough bids or maybe they knew you wouldn't be a good fit. Or, maybe or scoring on a test that's, that's, that's based on percentile. You know? Exactly. Like if you, if, Everyone else might have yeah, been smarter that day. Exactly. If you take a test that's based on what percentile you're in and you take the test with uh, everyone, that, uh, everyone that took the test other than you is the, 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 the group of the smartest people in the world and you end up at the bottom of the smartest people in the world. Doesn't mean you're not smart. Doesn't mean you're not smart. <laughs> yeah. But shakes out that way in terms of the stats. Neil, I think you had a, a practice about um, that you do in the, in the yes. morning to, uh, to manage worry, is it? Yes, I do. So here's the thing. Um, there it is. It's called two minute mornings and, uh, it's in the, it's in the new book. Basically what it is, is, uh, I was finding that when I was waking up in the morning, I was waking up with anxiety and actually it was sometimes waking me up at like one in the morning and then I couldn't get back to sleep. So now I'm like right beside my wife. I'm like turning on a headlight and reading like two hours beside her, trying not to move. So I don't wake her up cause I'm anxious. And I, then I started doing something without knowing it was a real thing which is when I get up in the morning, I just uh, write it out. I will stop comparing myself to Tim Ferriss. I will let go of the extra weight I gained over the holidays. I literally writing it down on a piece of paper took it out of me. And so on the back of that cue card, I started writing gratitudes. And then I started writing one area of focus. And that turned into a practice where I call it two-minute mornings, two of your thousand minutes a day. And all you do is write down, I will let go of, I am grateful for, I will focus on, and then, like any good writer, I went back and found the research to support it afterwards. Hmm. <laughs> I will let go of actually is super powerful because guess what? Almost every major world religion has a form of confession built into it. The Catholic confession chamber. You know the mobster in the movie? Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I put Big Tony in a vice <laughs> and I banged his wife. You know, you've heard that before. <laughs> so it's like that is a normal thing. However, it's not just Catholicism. It's Mormonism, Judaism, Islam. Um, these religions all have something where you confess to get it off your chest and mm. then you feel better. Right. What's happened in a religion? The fastest growing religion in the world is actually no religion. Mm. The fastest growing religion in the world is actually not having a belief system. Mm-hmm. So we've actually also lost, not only have we lost social connection there, but we've also lost 
contemporary confession. We're kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater sort of thing. I think so. And that's why I think postsecret.com is so popular Mm. because I think postsecret.com has become for millions of people a place to put a confession in a secular way. It's a hugely popular website. We have something in the yoga studio, in the Halifax studio where, um, um, where people, people write stuff down, uh, write that down. Like I will let go of. Yeah. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, I feel, uh, you know, I feel like I, uh, I feel like I, I don't deserve love or something like that. And it's, and it's writing it down and then like tossing in the thing. So you're like throwing it away. Where do you put it? Uh, it goes into a jar and they're anonymous and like anybody. The jar and, lives yeah, or it, it gets just, burned? No, it just sits there and like oh. until it, until it fills up and, um, and you know, people can throw that in there and it's like, you're, you're, you're just kind of giving away something that's like kind of weighing you down. Yeah. It would be really shitty if somebody came into your studio and was like, "Oh, a mantra jar," and then they came and opened it up and pulled one. And was like, I'm "I feel worthy. I'm not worthy of I love." I feel like I'm not worthy of love. <laughs> oh shit! And I should give I should I should uh, give credit where credit's due. That's um, Don Perry, a, a teacher of ours, started that initiative. She set she set them all up. That's and, really cool. Yeah. Um, Neil, I want to say thanks, man. This is it's been such a treat to to sit down and and get to know you and 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 dig into some of the stuff. Um, this has been like, you know, every time we come to the city, we get to meet some really fascinating individuals and, and, uh, this is, has been a a massive highlight for me, I would say. Um, and I just feel, I feel really grateful to have, have had you on the show and to, to spread some of the, the positivity that you're trying to put out there to, to our audience, because Mm -hmm. I think it's extraordinarily useful. Um, that's the one thing I'm grateful for today. What are you grateful for, Brian? I, I actually want to apologize to our listeners because I know that we're going to go and continue to uh, have lunch and chat with you, and we're going to have a really <laughs> good time right now. But that's not going to be recorded for people to listen to. So I'm I'm grateful for the time that uh, we've got to spend together today too. I I've learned a lot from you, and I'm excited to uh, dive back into your books and and learn even more. So mm. thanks for that. How about you, Tay? What are you grateful for? Uh, in the moment, what's coming to my head is I'm grateful for the podcast meeting people like Neil, all the people that we get to talk to on the road, the people that we get to meet, the people that, the people that we get to speak to. And spending um, time with friends. Spending time with, with, uh, with best friends. Yeah. Neil, what are you, what are you grateful for? Well, I thank you for letting me cause I was like, Oh, I hope they're not going to just close it off now. And then suddenly it's like, he didn't say one back. Um, <laughs> I said it, I think before we started recording and I meant it and it's like, it's, it's with sick boy and, I was mentioning your other podcast, uh, Jeremy. I was like, man, you guys are setting the bar for where the world needs to be on progressive, vulnerable, honest conversation. What used to be, I think, TMI in the old days. Mm. You know, now you hear Rich Roll talk about his alcoholism openly. Mark Marin openly. You know, these guys are setting a standard for what we where we can go. And I think it was called TMI in the old days because we didn't have. Um, uh, system to know how where to put that but now it's like no no it's it's you said it actually it was like it was like uh non-judgment is one mm-hmm. of the things you add in there um open 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 questions no such thing as a wrong answer so you add in these values that you guys do on the program and it's like well now you're having now you're doing something that's changing the world and so i actually i'm like i i'm flattered to be invited on and i think that what you're doing is just like healthy and needed, and and it's, it's and despite how popular your show is, not enough people are doing. It. Like no one else is like, who else is doing that? Like I'm mm-hmm. like, I struggle to think about other shows that are anywhere close to this level of vulnerability. So congratulations! I said stuff on this show, multiple things. You can guess which things that I've never <laughs> said before, and somehow felt comfortable. That's so, amazing. That's nice. the yeah. that's the highest compliment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for taking thank the you. time to hang out, and uh, thank you all so much for. 
uh, tuning in this week. We'll be back next week, as we always are, with another fascinating episode. Uh, but in the meantime, do us a huge favor. Uh, actually, do all of us a huge favor. Go to Apple Podcasts. Uh, look up three books with Neil Pasricha <laughs> and uh, hit the subscribe button. Give a rating and a review after you listen to one of the episodes. I know you're going to love it uh, just as much as I do. And then and then once you're there, I mean, you might as well just go over to Sick Boy Podcast and do the exact same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the, the reason we ask for that is because it actually, uh, you know, kind of feeds us into the the Apple podcast charts there and uh, allows for more people to hear conversations like this um, and to for people to see uh, other podcasts like Neil's. Um, so do that. And one of the reasons that we are able to be here in Toronto and when we were in Vancouver and Calgary and do these little tours is because of our amazing patrons on patreon.com. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash sickboy if you want to contribute. Um, we love each and every one of you who has, uh, who has helped us along the way and everybody in the future who will um, and everybody else who listens and ignores this message every week. Um, <laughs> we love you all. We truly do. Patreon.com slash sickboy. And thanks to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan, for the amazing sound design on the show. Thanks, Donovan, for making it sound like we're just in a, a cozy little book nook right now, mm, reading uh-oh. some of our favorite books. What uh, does a book nook sound like, Donovan? I'm I'm very curious. Sounds like s- the sound of silence. Sounds like <laughs> no, no, it, no, no, no. It doesn't. Do, do you hear that? Do you hear those comforting, soft sounds that you hear in the background oh, right I now? I think I am starting to yeah. get a faint. It's cozy. Yeah, oh, just cozy. a little bit of white noise. Mm. Uh, thanks, Donovan. Thanks to Jamesy as well for the uh, theme music to this, this show. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have music without you. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Neil. And this is Sick Work. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.